You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. As a lifelong Southern Baptist, literally except for like two years of my life, since the time I was about three and a half, I've attended Southern Baptist churches. Um, there's a lot of our history that needs to be explored, uh, and my guest today talks about a significant portion of that history that I was completely unaware of, and then when I read his book and began and talked to him, it was like, well, of course this is what would have happened. Uh, this is exactly how this would have played out. It wouldn't have played out any other way. It wasn't possible for it to play out any other way. Uh, the Global Mission of the Jim Crow South is the name of the book. Uh, Jal Chavez is going to be talking today about what happened when Southern Baptists began to send missionaries after the end of the Civil War. Now, remember, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed over the issue of slavery. Uh, there was this idea that some missionaries wanted to take slaves with them. Uh, some did not want that to happen, and there was a split over whether or not that would be allowed. Well, once the war was over, that didn't end the Southern Baptists' preoccupation with slavery and their belief uh, amongst the majority of them, apparently, that it was okay or it was a God-ordained institution, or at the very least, it was something that would benefit them. Uh, some of these people did officially or unofficially become missionaries. Some of them were sent as missionaries. Others of them relocated. And that's the part that really kind of caught me by surprise so that they could be in a country where slavery was still legalized. Uh, so this is a fascinating and disturbing uh, part of uh, church history from the very recent past in the United States and in Central America. So this is Dr. Jaw Chavez. Well, my guest today on Uncommentary is the author of a fascinating book, The Global Mission of the Jim Crow South. And I've already told him that this book is uh, rocky, both rocking my world and bringing together some pieces that I didn't even know needed to be connected. So if you're Southern Baptist listening to this, uh, this is going to help and hurt, uh, probably in that, not in that order, it's probably backwards. Uh, but this is a, uh, an important study, I think. And if you listen a lot, you know that we deal with a lot of, uh, evangelical and Southern Baptist history. Um, but the, the full title of the book is the global mission of the Jim Crow South Southern Baptist missionaries and the shaping of Latin American evangelicalism. My guest today is Dr. Zhao B. Chavez, and I'm going to let him pronounce his name properly because I know that I did not, but he's been very gracious with me and my efforts. Uh, so Dr. Chavez, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you, thank you. Good, good to be here. And, and the first name is João, but uh, if it starts with a J, I often respond to it. So I appreciate <laughs> you trying. You're being a good sport, man. I'm telling you, you are really, really helping an old man out here. Um, so um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what you're going to do? All right, thank you. Well, I, I am the Associate Director for Programming at the Hispanic Theological Initiative, which is housed at Princeton Theological Seminary. And what we do there is provide professional development and accompaniment to Latinx PhD students. Um, and the, the mission is to, uh, to form Latinx PhD students for service in the academy, the church, and the world. And we do this with, uh, alongside several partners uh, and, and in different directions. So um, I'm very happy. I'm a graduate of that program, uh, Baylor University, mm -hmm. where I got my PhD, is one of the members of the consortium. And I have been blessed 
to be able to go back and work with the wonderful staff there at HGI under the leadership of my, my dear sister and boss, Joanne Rodriguez, who I, who I really love. And I'm also an incoming faculty member, um, the assistant professor of, of, uh, of evangelism and mission at Austin Presbyterian Seminary in Austin, Texas, which is a few minutes away from where I'm recording this with you. Uh, I'm, I'm doing That's it from fantastic. somewhere, which is right outside of, of Austin. And, and I'm, I'm excited to... I'm I'm excited to start in that position and you know uh, get to enjoy the community at APTS a little more closely. That's fantastic. Now you told me uh, offline that you're from a Baptist background. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I I am Baptist. Um, not not all of them would claim me, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I am Baptist. I I became a Christian as a as a teenager. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, my uh, grandmother, who was the one who really kind of took initiative uh, to, to bring my sister and I to church, uh, was Assemblies of God, but there was a Baptist church close to our house. And, oh, wow. um, and, and that was, uh, you know, went a, a long way towards, you know, us becoming Baptist. I, we, we, we went to that church and kept on coming back. You know, and uh, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's been a long journey since. So this was in Recife, Brazil, where I am from originally. That's awesome. So how did you get interested in this particular subject matter? Um, I, I could see possibly the Latin America connection. Uh, if you've got, you know, ancestral roots there or something like that. Uh, and then there's the Baptist connection, especially if you were uh, adjacent to Southern Baptist work at some time in your history. Um, how did you get interested in this specific idea of uh, Southern Baptist missionaries kind of exporting uh, their prejudice and racism as they were doing mission work? Yeah, thank you for the question. It, it, it is a complicated answer because it has these different streams, you know, in terms of the, of the question. Uh, I became a Christian in a church that was founded by a Southern Baptist missionary. And, um, okay. and in Recife, where one of the major seminaries, which I talk about in the book, the, the Baptist Seminary in the North, um, was was at so there was big missionary influence there, and uh, it was always very interesting to me, um, you know, coming into Christianity and the Baptist Church as a teenager, uh, how Baptist is still a is still a minority when that when that happened in Brazil in the nineties. Mm -hmm. I joined the Baptist Church. Uh, it's still a, mi a minority in a ma in a majority Catholic country. Very much a uh, uh, you know now is shifting uh, in the, the, in Brazil. The, um, in terms of Protestant Catholic numbers, uh, it's 2020, 2032 is predicted as the year when that's going to shift, but that wasn't even in the horizon. When I'm, so it was interesting to see how mm -hmm. Baptists in general kind of interacted with the society around them. Uh, and missionary influence was everywhere to be seen. And, and uh, it was always very interesting, interesting to me. I always kind of wanted to learn a little more about that story. I was influenced by a high school history professor early on to be interested in history. And I had many questions about that, but I never really engaged, you know, systematically in the understanding of some of that dynamic. That came later, uh, which respond perhaps more directly to your question. But, uh, you know, it came um, almost accidentally. I, did, I, I wasn't, I didn't set out to write this book but mm -hmm. in, in, uh, because coming to the U.S. and experience you know, life as migrant and being part of immigrant churches, I wanted to understand 
uh, you know, primarily the, the, the history and dynamics of immigrant churches, which what I did, it's, it's what I did for my dissertation, which came out in a book last year called Migration or Religion. But I was uh, uh, in, a, in a department that did the history of Christianity. And, uh, and something that now I'm, I'm thankful for, but at the time what I wasn't really thrilled about was that I was challenged by my, my advisor and, and others to do more traditional archival work because there was a lot of oral history and ethnography in the st- involved mm-hmm. in the study of the immigrant churches. Uh, so I framed the, the dissertation to do a history of the first hundred years of Baptists in Brazil. So then I could transition into seeing what, until the 80s when really mass Brazilian mass migration is happening into the U.S. And then I transitioned into uh, you know, the study of, of migration, which was what I was really interested about at the, in at the time. Uh, but I had done lots of archival work for this history of Baptists in Brazil. And what, and what came to my attention very early on as I went into the primary sources, missionary correspondence and and articles in both uh, Portuguese and English, was how much of uh, the, um, the, the, the spirit of the South, the South in the old South mm-hmm. was infused into that mm-hmm. story. And how much that story, which is very clear from the primary sources, differed both from the secondary histories written by missionaries themselves and the Brazilian Baptists they trained in Brazilian Baptist seminaries as there was mm. from the articles and periodicals that were printed for Brazilian Baptists to consume. Uh, and, and I just tried to uh, take a look at that. Uh, I think it's um, important for uh, people to understand, because this is the thing, I guess, that caught me by surprise as I was reading, that the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, and anybody who's ever spent 10 seconds with Southern Baptist history would tell you, oh, yeah, the Baptists split over the issue of slavery. And so there's a Northern Baptist Convention and a Southern Baptist Convention. But it's almost like that there was no ramification, that there was no effect of that at all. It was like uh, there was the split. The Southern Baptists started building schools and sending missionaries. The Northern Baptists did whatever it is they do. Southern Baptists don't even know. Um, But it's one of the things that shook me in your book is that after the Civil War, and the Southern Baptist Convention was already founded prior to the Civil War, but after the Civil War, there were thousands of families that left the Southern United States for Brazil where slavery was still legalized. So in the southern United States, slavery had been at least technically outlawed and took a while to get there, but at least technically outlawed. Uh, and, and all these families left so that they could go to a country where slavery was still allowed. And among these thousands of people were Southern Baptist missionaries who began theological training with all of that baggage. I, I mean, I was just like, I, I couldn't even wrap my mind around that. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So uh, what... What I try to lay out in the book, and it, this is a more perhaps intra-scholarly conversation, but I think it is generally interesting, is that often missionaries, uh, or in the missionary literature, uh, the literature and the study of missions, show missionaries as being many times more progressive than their correligionists that stay home, right? So uh, mm-hmm. U.S. missionaries or Southern Baptist missionaries in Africa or China, for example, if you look at them, 
many times they show certain dispositions toward race and, and gender and other things that would would uh, make them seem progressive when compared to those who stayed back or in the officials of mm -hmm. the mission board themselves and others. And that's generally true. Uh, but if you look at places like Brazil, which is a white supremacist country, it's just a different kind of mm. white supremacy. Uh, you, you see the dispositions and racial imaginations of missionaries really flourish in that, rather than being challenged in that, in that setting. Uh, so, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, but, but uh, you know, in, in, in general, in terms, of, uh, in terms of how we understand missionaries writ large, it's very hard to have this, uh, something that I try to challenge in the book, this picture of missionaries uh, as, uh, you know, uh, this monolithic kind of uh, persona across regions and, and cultures. Uh, but, uh, you know, and part of, of, of that, uh, of, of me articulating that is because, uh, you know, lots of the literature that, that tries to uh, be used to frame the particular uh, you know, meta-narrative of missionaries as more progressive than those people in the same denominations in their homeland, homeland uh, uh, do not look at the way in which the missionaries operated in Latin America in light of the fact that countries like Brazil uh, are very much, uh, in terms of its gen the general contour of, of, of its racial imagination, um, similar, right? So, yeah, so, so when, when, the, when, when the war ended, like you mentioned, after the war ended, uh, Brazil remained a slavehold country, slaveholding country for another 23 years until 1888 was the last one to abolish slavery, and and uh, both the Brazilian government that wanted to quote unquote whiten the race influenced uh, you know migration from Europe and and the United States, uh, but also Southerners who wanted to reconstruct the old South in Brazil migrated, but they. Uh, and although Brazil remained a slaveholding country, they were still surprised by the amount of what they perceived as lack of segre racial segregation. There was too much intermingling between races. They thought that the slave owners in Brazil were too lenient toward the slaves. Slaves could buy their freedoms. Soon after, uh, uh, black people who were born were born free. And then gradually, slavery was becoming less and less prominent. But the intermingling of races, of miscegenation, really became a problem to them. So they formed ethnic enclaves, predominantly of, of, uh, of white Americans. And, and there were Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists among them. Uh, and, and in those enclaves, to this day, they celebrate the Confederacy. So if you go to places like Santa Barbara do Oeste, that is a yearly celebration of the confederacy uh, there in Brazil. And it is there that the sustainable phase of, of missionary Yeah. <laughs> That's like mind-blowing to me. In, uh, in Brazil, they're celebrating the American confederacy. No, no, yeah, they, 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 it is. And, and again, it, it is in those enclaves that the sustainable phase of, of Baptist missions to Brazil began. And, um, and it, 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 it remained a hub or, or a heart of the place that would receive missionaries for a while. It ends up becoming more complex and diversified and diffused because it's a very successful, successful mission in general. But the, 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 the spirit uh, you know, of, um, 
of 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 the of the south uh, lived or the old south i should say mm-hmm. lived in uh, in those enclaves for a while you mentioned in the book that there was a there was a journal that was started uh, i think it was started by a southern baptist missionary uh, journal bautista maybe or bautista right the um, journal bautista that's right uh, and it was like hugely influential and the the main guy the the leader the editor the publisher whatever the right terminology is for his position uh led it for like 20 years or something like that and it was a it was a very southern influenced uh old south influenced to use the terminology that you just brought in uh type of presentation of the gospel and of theology um what effect did that have on theological training or theological perspectives in Brazil? Yeah, that, that was huge influence. Now, that, that, there are kind of three pillars of the success of the Baptist mission in Brazil. And they, and, and, and they go together uh, in, in some ways. And it is publication, theological education, and evangelism and church planting. Right? So it was very clear for missionaries that those pillars were important, and they went together. And, um, and, and missionaries like the one you mentioned, Ensminger, uh, who, was, uh, who, who was a missionary in Brazil for a while, uh, and then he left to other fields, and he was uh, the, the editor of the Jana Batista for a long time, was very explicit about uh, the, you know, the, the, the way in which uh, you know, the, the, the publication, which is the publication that has the most influence in shaping a national Baptist identity in Brazil, um, you know, he was very in, in, intentional in in deciding what what made into the journal or was translated into the journal and the stories that were told. Now, we, we need to remember that in this, the, in places like the Jornal Batista, especially in a country in which Baptists feel threatened by the Catholic majority for reasons that sometimes are more legitimate than others, uh, the, the journal served to shape the social imagination of the readers, not only in theological terms, but also in terms of how they saw the world in general. So if you look at the early issues of the Jornal, Jornal Batista, you see you know, world history and, and that being, being interpreted by the lens of, of the missionaries. You see U.S. history, uh, you see religious history, and also doctrine uh, you know, and theology there, but it's much more than that. And in and, and, uh, and these publications, Jornal Batista, more than any of them, uh, really helped shape not only the theological imagination of Brazilian Baptists, but also social, political, historical imagination as well. You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is uh, Dr. Gio Chavez. Chavez. Um, and we're talking about the global mission of the Jim Crow South. It's a... Uh, book he's written, but larger than that, it's a story that he's studied about Southern Baptist influence and impact in Brazil, especially post-Civil War, uh, through, I guess, technically, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, or in that general era. Uh, and we're going to be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing, there's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. 
Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. So in your book, you mentioned something that, um, I should have known, uh, not because I'd ever read it. I just should have figured it out. It's, I feel when I read it, I felt like Marty, you're really not smart. You should have figured this out. Uh, and that is that some Southern Baptist missionaries and some apparently with some amount of influence when they went to Brazil following the, uh, end of the civil war, they took with them this mythology that had developed in the South called the lost cause, which was a, uh, a system or a filter, a philosophy, a, a narrative to explain away or rationalize the severity of the loss of the South in the war to where, A, it wasn't so bad, B, they almost could have won the thing if they'd have just had a little luck on their side, uh, and then that slavery wasn't so bad after all, and the slaves were really happy with it, and it was just one big happy family. Just some of them worked in the field and the rest of them on the house. Um and, and so this was the whole thing that blew up in the South and it's it perpetuated even to this day, actually. Um, but this whole philosophy followed or was taken by Southern Baptist missionaries to Brazil and became one of the kind of explanatory filters for um, how they expressed the gospel and the narrative of, of uh, Southern Baptist life or Baptist life, Baptist history. Um, that was a shocker to me. So talk mm. a little bit about how uh, how that happened and what it meant. Oh yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. The lost cause. I, I like the definition that I heard first from my dear friend, who's a scholar of the lost cause, Christopher Moore. He says that the lost cause is how the South won the war, right? Uh, it, it didn't win. <laughs> it, 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 it did not win the war on the battlefield, but it won the war in the culture war, right? Um, you yeah. know, in in, yeah. in uh, shaping a particular imagination that, of course, is the only one of the streams of memory that come out of post-Civil War times. Uh, but but it's it's definitely a very influential one, and the and missionaries were uh, also um, socialized into that mentality. Um, yeah, so one, one of the, the people that I mentioned about the book, for example, Rosa Mil, uh, Rosalie Mills Appleby, very influential missionary. She is, uh, in her both Portuguese and English texts, still praising Robert E. Lee all the way up to the, to the mid-20th century. Um, as a matter of fact, in one of her texts, she frames Robert E. Lee as, as being unblemished. Um, and uh, she talks wow. about David and Moses as people who sinned. But Robert E. Lee had lived an unblemished life. So you see you know, the wow. commitment to that particular memory of, of the lost yeah, cause. Wow. And these missionaries are translating uh, you know, these ideas, um, talk about civil war, they frame southern soldiers as Christians and Union soldiers as not. Uh, so again, back to the point that I made about the Journal Batista and other publications, uh, you know, they, they are doing a lot more than, than traditional theological uh, you know, kind of exercises. But one point that is also important to mention 
is that uh, it, this influence is multidirectional because at the same time that you have these missionaries influencing Brazilians uh, and Brazilian Baptists in particular via publication, theological education in the seminaries there and other things, they are also sending those who they want to be the leaders of the denomination, white men, to a segregated mm -hmm. South to study at flagship institutions uh, like Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary that, that uh, in, in case of Southern, for example, uh, have in the faculty, you know, folks who are uh, either had fought in the lost cause or, I mean, in the, sorry, mm -hmm. in, the, in the Civil War and were, and were, uh, or were ex War, yeah. extreme supporters of the South, uh, you know, be in, in Southern memory construction beyond that, including, including, of course, the lost cause mythology. So if, if not via their own uh, direct influence in Brazil, via sending Brazilians uh, or Brazilian white men to the segregated South to study in places like Southern, they were also infusing them with the ideology of, ideology of the lost cause via theological education. So in these particular cases, Theological education, rather than a remedy, was really a disease. Mm. Yeah, I remember a, a vignette that you tell in the book. I think it's about Ira Sankey, the hymn writer, where mm -hmm. um, he was uh, he was in the Union Army, and they they completely retold the story so that he was in the Confederate Army, uh, trying to win uh, win a Union soldier to Christ by singing him his hymns to him or something like right, that. Right, uh, right. Yeah. They, they reversed. They the, put him in completely the, in twisted the, the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that is and that is that is very interesting. And and sometimes it is it is it can be perceived as subtle to the audience like that. And other times it's really explicit. Another point that I uh, that that I think I another article, for example, that I think I mentioned in the book that is characteristic of that mentality is. The editor that, that we just talked about, Entzminger, writing a, an editorial that, that he says, uh, well, so you ask if I'm Protestant, right? Yes, I am Protestant, and we have been something like that. With, together with the European, we have been kind of a, you know, a, a, a predestined to, to, to rule the world. Right? So you see that very yeah, much explicit yeah. colonial spirit coming out. They are not unapologetic yeah. about that. Uh, yeah, and he may have been the one, I forget, that's uh, like overtly bragging about Germany like 20 years before Hitler comes on the scene. I'm like, come on, guys. Yeah, and, 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 and at one point, um, he also has a, a, um, a, a very uh, explicit uh, uh, kind of cases of anti-Semitism when, you know, he mm -hmm. goes, uh, he, pre he, he pretty much kind of uh, uh, complains very explicitly about Solomon Ginsburg, who became a Southern Baptist missionary yeah. uh, after he was already in Brazil, very influential uh, Jewish European man, and Entzminger really disliked him, and uh, he asked the formation board to send him uh, a real American, uh, you know, to to replace wow. him, by which he means a Southern American, to uh, to replace him because he he, he tells them, and I'm a paraphr I'm paraphrasing here. That is not that Entzminger was not good, even in things that Jews need to be good at, which was handling money. Right, so you can see very much those those stereotypes and uh, and uh, uh, kind of vicious imagination that he shared. And and, uh, and in some ways, uh, one perhaps would have been asking too much of him to be different. 
There's a couple of uh, a couple of modern uh, current, like really current, not just modern times, as in like you're in my lifetime, but like current, as in like the last couple of three years. Uh, issues that you see are connected in the book, and I want to ask you to to comment on both of them. One is the support for uh, former President Trump by American evangelicals and the support for President uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil by Brazilian evangelicals. That's one of the things I want you to comment on. And then the second thing I want you to comment on is the uh, critical race theory contra- dust-up in uh, Southern Baptist life in the last year, uh, two or three years, and how you see that that is related to uh, this influence that has been kind of hanging around for all these years. Yeah, well, those are those are two big ones. Um but but yeah, well, so <laughs> what? Well, that that's a, that is a lot of literature already, which I'm trying to just add a small footnote with this book too, on the ways right. in which both Brazil and the U.S. have partnered in the creation of Christian nationalism. And uh, recording here this podcast right after having seen the January sixth commission last night, right? Um, yeah, brings yeah, that yeah, brings that to. Uh, in a more pronounced light, um, but um, uh, in 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 very um, uh, explicit ways, Brazil and the U.S. partner in this creation of of um, of Christian nationalism, uh, partially because Brazil, um, during the dictatorship, is going through a, a number of particular interesting dynamics. One, the dictators well, is a, is an American supported dictatorship. Uh, the, the dictators are wanting to suppress the progressive wings of the Roman Catholic Church, the liberation theology more explicitly mm-hmm. uh, because of, of their uh, commitment to the poor, which the, uh, the government, uh, you know, the dictators take as being communist and take as being something negative. Uh, and so in, in trying to suppress... Uh, the, the Catholic Church, one of the things that the dictators did was provide certain benefits to Protestant leaders uh, like Baptists, among them former president of the Baptist World Alliance, Nilson Fanini, uh, you know, who got TV and radio rights from the, 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 the Brazilian government during the dictatorship as part of this plan to suppress certain theological slash political dispositions from the Catholic progressives mm-hmm. uh, and allow for this more conservative social imagination to take place via and you know the, the the augmentation or the expansion in the number of Protestants who were uh, by that point uh, especially after the, the 1940s uh, very much Americanized so you have uh, you know mm-hmm. this 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 uh, development that be- that began earlier uh, via the influence of of, uh, of missionaries, but continue with the boost that dictators give uh, American influence Brazilian Protestants uh, to really see this uh, development of of uh, you know this uh, this theopolitical imagination of of Brazilian evangelicalism, which in some ways, uh, some intentional ways, overlap with uh, the politicization of uh, the new Republican Party, uh, you know, via you know the mm-hmm. the influence of folks like like Billy Graham, and then the moral majority that comes after that, and others. Uh, so there are lots of overlap there that that continue 
in ways that sometimes uh, have their own local streams, but sometimes are very much interrelated. You know, I mean, the, at the same time, for, I'll give I give an example in the book uh, of this kind of construction and maintenance of a transnational social political conservative imagination uh, when. The Scopes trial, for example, in the 1920s is happening in the U.S. It is being narrated uh, via a particular conservative key in places like the Jornal Batista and other denominational periodicals. That tendency of translating and influencing uh, and, and exposing a conservative understanding of global history in general, but U.S. history in particular, uh, you know, in ways that very intentionally want to uh, form uh, this alignment between Brazilian Baptist or Brazilian evangelical mentality and U.S. evangelical mentality. It's really happening and it really works. Uh, and and uh, so then you have uh, figures like, you know, Bolsonaro come up and, and, and uh, being able to capitalize and represent what Brazilian evangelicals in general, there is a resistance there, but in general, in terms of majority, uh, you know, uh, uh, very much uh, support as uh, this one person that perhaps is close to them as he is in mm -hmm. government because they have tried to go get in power before and failed. And Bolsonaro mm -hmm. is what is what many sociologists have called, I think Paul Freston was the first one to say, the first pan-Christian pan president of Brazil, meaning that he uh, both appeals as a Roman Catholic himself to the conservative Catholic majority, uh, but he also crosses over to evangelicals, and he does that in very intentional ways, being baptized in the Jordan River by a Pentecostal pastor as he was, mm -hmm. being married mm -hmm. by a Baptist, going to evangelical pulpits. Uh, and, and, uh, and the way in which the, the, the Trump campaign strategies like Steve Bannon have helped him and his sons um, along the way, and others, show these partnerships right so um so mm -hmm. that that it, it is a project that it uh, this project of the new conservatism in brazil uh that uh, you know bolsonaro represents its uh from the conservative political conservative um, uh, point of view uh the the most successful experiment but has been building up in, in a way that is continuous one can see continuity mm -hmm. Uh, in this in this project, and today in you know, a Brazil where evangelicals have not only the numbers but also the political clout uh, to be involved in politics in ways that historically were not available, uh, I know really uh, show uh, that this continuous plan that you can trace back to the way the missionaries uh, in, uh, introduced and maintained their own uh, influence. Um, you know, uh, you you see that that continuity in the project there. Wow, uh, and now critical race theory and intersectionality. You uh, you mentioned, and uh, and I'm I'm not an expert in either of those things. I think I know what they mean, and I think I know where they're located and what they're trying to discover. Uh, but you see a connection in uh, maybe indirect or maybe direct. I'll let you explain. Um, in the. Uh, the spiritual and mental, let's say it that way, heritage of Southern Baptist life. Uh, mm -hmm. You seem to see that that the rejection of CRT by the six seminary presidents uh, was a thing that could be expected from Southern Baptists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, I see that in, in, in continuity with, 
know, the, the trajectory of Pseudomaptic's life. Um, and and uh, to, to explain very simplistically in some ways, um, uh, no critical race theory, it, it, it's basically you know, the use of some tools developed in the social science to analyze how race, race dynamics in the U.S. and in the world um, has some explicit discriminatory factors, but there are also some implicit epistemological and social factors and structural factors um, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that need to be analyzed and, 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 and if, uh, if possible, dismantled. Uh, my experience and, uh, and study of Southern Baptists uh, in general show that what Southern Baptists often do in terms of race is opt to a strategy of ethnic transcendence, uh, meaning uh, they, they want to emphasize the fact that we are all one in Christ, which is, you know, a theological statement that, uh, that uh, it is as broadly accepted. Um, uh, no, but, but, but they want to, uh, uh, to affirm that, while, uh, as if that uh, trumped the fact that we can be radically different on earth, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, on, and on our daily livings and in the way in which mm-hmm. our backgrounds, neighborhoods, uh, you know, families, uh, socioeconomic status shape us. Uh, so indeed, these this strategies of ethnic transcendence are really, uh, you know, folks who adopt them are really not interested in knowing the mechanisms of racial oppression, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they get in the way of the mission, and the mission is having people walk the aisle. You don't want to upset that, right? Um, right and right. Uh, so, so when one ha- when and this is not the whole story, but certainly part part of it. When one has one's theology driven by the temptation to fall into or to run towards strategies of ethnic transcendence or the, the, uh, the, the affirmation that we are one in Christ so we're not going to talk about our differences. Um, then one is tempted to you know, fall into the illusion of, of thinking that uh, the statement that we serve the same God uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. solves every social problem. And as a matter of fact, that statement has sometimes created some problems, not because of the statement itself, but because of the right. people who have taught us. Right? Uh, so um, so uh, I mentioned that about, um, about critical race theory, and, 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 and uh, I also outlined some of the reactions that black pastors have had, some of them leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, to, to, to kind of show... Uh, you know what's happening? I, I I I kind of just opposed that without happening in Brazil, where there was a panel about racism that was cancelled. Right. You know uh, by uh, oh then they 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 just they maintained the panel, but uh, they cancelled the invitation of the people that were going to talk about uh, no race in the panel, <laughs> who was people who do it critically, right? As, as this kind right. of um, this kind of. Uh, of, uh, of kind of statement that shows that there is a lot of continuity with the kind of racial imagination that that uh, that happened in the past is just shifts, uh, you know, by you know, the, the adoption of uh, colorblind racism, uh, and um, mm. which which is what this 
strategies of ethnic transcendence via certain theological statements ultimately do. Mm. Oh, I was going to just talk a little bit about intersectionality yeah. because then it, it, it really is where, you know, where another cookie crumbles, to use the, <laughs> the American saying, <laughs> uh, right? Because then you start dealing with the fact that in order for you to understand society, each other, you know, in our communities. Now, you really have to look at a, a series of social dynamics which include most prominently issues of, or, or, or the, 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 the compounding issues of race, class, and gender. And, um, and, and that just, it just puzzles me in one way. It, yeah. uh, it is expected in other ways. There you have the leaders yeah. of the alleged intellectual uh, you know, institutions of the Southern Baptist denomination, all of them, all white men, sign statements saying that tools that have been proven uh, to help us understand ourselves, others, uh, and groups uh, are just against the message of the gospel. Right? And then, yeah. not only that, they make very clear that their faculty can't teach that, uh, and, and that uh, you know, uh, uh, it's uh, you know, it's it, it is really puzzling and counterproductive to me. And I know some of these. Uh, we're talking offline about you know a meeting that I had with one of these presidents of Southern Baptist Seminary not too long ago. I know these are bright men, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so they, I mean, and I know that you know they're very capable people in some ways. And I know that uh, behind the curtains, some of them would say. I have an opinion as an individual, but I have another responsibility to a larger constituency when I sit in my office, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I get that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but yet, it's, it seems that uh, it goes without saying that the, the, the ability of the Southern, of Southern Baptist Convention to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to be productive on the issue of race has sailed. Um, and, uh, and, and class... And gender are, you know, are also there, especially if you're paying attention to what's, what's brewing uh, in the, the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of sexual assault, which I also mm -hmm. talk about in the book very briefly, uh, and, and, what's, you know, and what perhaps seems to be in the horizon of the denomination. Uh, so, um, so again, I, I see lots of continuity there. Um, there are different strategies of... Um, of uh, you know uh, the, the the ways in which the the, the theologies and, and racial and social dispositions of Southern Baptists manifest themselves, but in terms of its spirit, uh, it is a very uh, consistent denomination. Mm. The book is the global mission of the Jim Crow South: Southern Baptist Missionaries and the Shaping of Latin American Evangelicalism by Watch This Now, Brother, Doctor J. B. Chavez. See how there you did go. that? I mean that's. Isn't that, that's the way I'm supposed to do it. Uh, this is a great book. If you're interested in Southern Baptist history, this is one you do not want to miss. Um, now, do you hang out on social media at all? Do you have like a Twitter account or anything like that? I have a Twitter account that I forget the handle. Uh, and I can tell you here a minute because I could use some extra followers. You know, um, I, it's, it's, it's at João B underline Chavez. That's the Twitter handle right there. Okay. Um, I'll definitely include that in the show notes uh, where I include all your bio stuff in there. 
Thank and, you. And uh, I'll link to your other books as well. And uh, you guys, uh, be sure and share this one with folks that uh, have an interest in SBC history and uh, maybe wonder how this is all connected and why we can't get, of our, get out of our own way sometimes on the race issue. I think this is explanatory to that. Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for the invitation and, and, for, the, and for the encouraging and productive talk. Good to be here. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Thank you.